What's up, the point? Y'all been hanging by the pool too much this week, right? Y'all already lazy. Who's staying up too late, sleeping in, staying up too late, sleeping in too late, laying out by the pool, hanging out, summer's here, responsibility is gone, mom and dad are at work, you play video games all day, your thumbs are all cramped up because you've been, who's that? Is that anybody in the house, anybody can relate to that? I hear you, I hear you, I don't blame you. I don't blame you, I mean, you've been in a 181 days of hard labor inside of your school and it is time to break free and have a little break. So thank you for taking the time out of your break to come and be a part of The Point tonight. We want to welcome you. And uh, man, I just love that stinking song we just sang. You know what I'm saying? Long to look on the face of, of the one that I love. Uh, yes. Derek the American Idol. Uh, well. You know, I, I, uh, I, was, I was singing about this song, and I was kind of looking around, you know, a little bit, and watching people just kind of worship, and I, I was just kind of, and, and I, I remember when I was, when I was a, a new believer as a senior in high school, and I'd kind of been living my life for myself, selfishly doing things for me, doing things my way, being the God of my own life, partying, doing the, you know, hooking up with the girl thing, all this kind of stuff. I was doing things for myself. And I wasn't focused on God or anything else in my life because I didn't want to be responsible to anything else in my life. And then God changed my life. And I remember I started coming to, to church as a senior in high school, a brand new Christian, not really knowing what was going on. I didn't know any Bible verses, didn't know any of this kind of stuff. And I remember I was set in youth group and like people would sing and they would raise their hands. I really didn't know what they were doing or like why they were doing that. And it kind of creeped me out a little bit. And, and then like after a while, you know, like I, I started, I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise my hands too. I don't want to be left out. You know, so I started raising my hand. I started singing too. And, and it was almost like when I would do that, it was like, it was almost like how I pictured it in my mind was that like God was like, like way out there somewhere and like I was looking up with my eyes closed and I was like reaching out to him as if he was this distant being so far from me that I couldn't intimately know, personally relate to, but he's way out there and I'm worshiping him and my attention is on him, my focus is on him, I'm not thinking about some girl that I think is cute, I'm not thinking about the room, I'm not thinking about this kind of stuff, but, but it was like this distant, kind of distant thing from me. And what Heather talked about when she was explaining kind of the background behind of that, talking about how Moses would meet with Jesus face to face is that that is exactly what God does in the context of worship. See, we know that God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. God is not some distant God that is way out there. God is interested in your life. He is personally involved in your life. Whether you want to acknowledge that or not, He is there and He exists, and that is who He is. And so... I remember I heard a worship pastor say this. I'd been a Christian for like four or five years, and he said this, and, and it just like, and it was like, man, this is, this was life changing. And I don't know if this will help you at all, and this has nothing to do with the message tonight, but just something that, that just kind of clicked in my head. But he said, he said, listen, he says, when we raise our hands, we are raising our hands. This is the universal symbol for surrender. So we are, we are holding our hands up saying we surrender to God, but, but he is right in front of you. He is there face to face. They're like, we want to long to look at his face, but, but like he is there. He is in this room. He is in our midst. He is here face to face. He even tells us, Jesus tells us in the New Testament, he says, where two or more are gathered, I will be there in the midst. Let me tell you, he, there are more than two people in this room right now, right? 
And so he is here in our midst. He is a part of this. He is here. And so when I'm sitting here, I don't picture God being this, this distant being that is far out there that I can't really relate to or don't really know intimately. But I picture him being right here in front of me. I picture him being on this stage, standing in front of me. And I'm holding my hands out in surrender, saying, God, I surrender to you. I give it all to you. God, I am singing my praises to you. I'm worshiping you because you are worthy of praise. Not me, not anybody else but you. I don't know what you picture, I don't know what you think about in your time of worship, but that makes it personal, that makes it intimate, because the God we serve, the God we worship is a personal, intimate God who is completely involved and concerned about your everyday life and every part of you and all that you are. And we see that all throughout scripture in the story of the Bible. In fact, uh, this, this past uh, uh, weekend, um, uh, I was, my wife and I, we were in D.C., Washington, D.C., and uh, my wife had never been there before. I had been there before, but, but um, I, I don't know, like, is there any, like, like history, like, buff people in here? <laughs> like, one of you? Um, great, you guys are going to really be with me on this. Uh, when I was in high school, that was my least favorite subject. But now I love, oh, yeah, okay, we got two. Yeah, you go. And uh, when I was in high school, I loved history, and I, and I, and I, no, I'm sorry, I hated it. After high school, I started kind of liking it and that kind of stuff. And now I love it. Anyway, so we're there and we're like going through all these museums. And it was kind of cool because we went to the, to the, like the National Archives and we're walking through. And we were looking at the Declaration of Independence. Like the actual document in this like massive case with these armed security guards standing around it. Like if you touch it, we're going to assassinate you right now and nobody's going to even know what happened. You know what I'm saying? Those kind of people. And, then, and then, the, then the Constitution and then the Bill of Rights. And we're sitting there looking at these things and, and just in all of this. And then, and then we went to the Lincoln Monument and we're standing there. Um, we're standing there in front of the Lincoln Monument, the Lincoln Memorial. And it's like, man, we are standing on the steps where Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech. I mean, we are standing here looking at Abraham Lincoln, this monument that is set up. In fact, when we were going through the National Archives, my wife said the coolest document in the entire thing was the, the Emancipation Proclamation that, that Lincoln had signed. And we were looking at that. It was really cool. And then just the Washington Monument and all of these different people, this his, history of our country, this history of our nation, the history of the people who went before us. And then Memorial Day, as we celebrate, Celebrate the lives that were lost, the, the price that was paid for your freedom, and, the, and the, the, the way that we get to be in this room to worship together and not have to worry about someone kicking down our doors and taking us off to prison. Which you know that in many countries around the world, that happens. I just pulled up the news yesterday. A pastor in Iran, in the middle of the service, he was preaching on the stage. Guards came in the back doors, walked up to the front, took him to the ground, tied him up in front of his entire congregation, drug him out, and put him in prison. Why? That's why. The Bible. And this Bible is a historical document of real people, real places, real times, real things that actually happened. And it is the story, not only of real people in real places, but it is the story of a real God interacting with real people, this personal God meeting with his people face to face. And this summer, what we, look, we are looking to do is we are looking to take a walk through the Old Testament so that we can understand two-thirds of the Bible 
39 books of the Old Testament to understand that. So if we can understand the Old Testament, then we can understand even better the New Testament. Because the Old Testament is the story of God raising up this nation Israel, raising up uh, through this nation Israel, this one who would come, the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus Christ, who would come, God's son, born of a virgin, who would then... Live life here on earth, be tempted in every way, yet without sin. Go to the cross, die on the cross, paying for my sin and your sin, taking it all on his back, dying for it so that you no longer have to spiritually die, but he died your death already for you on the cross. He substituted his life for you. And then he was buried on the third day, rose again, defeating sin and death, so that now if we put our trust and faith in him, we can have eternal life through Jesus Christ. He can restore everything in your life back to the way that it was supposed to be and even though you will still physically die here on this earth you will not spiritually die but you will live for eternity with him i mean that is the message of the bible and that is an incredible message and we started last week in the book of genesis and we talked about genesis chapter 1 through genesis chapter 11 let me give you a quick recap and then we're going to jump right into genesis chapter 12 and then we're going to break in about 20 minutes or so and then we got some popcorn out there and everybody can go out and get you some popcorn come back in and then we're going to watch about a 35 to 40 minute video uh, on on the life of abraham and, uh, and this is actually from the Bible series, the television series. And we're going to watch the piece on Abraham because tonight I'm going to take you through the story of Abraham and the life of Abraham. The, um, and so let's do a little recap. Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 1 begins with in the beginning God. So before there were trees, before there were animals, before there were humans, before there were oceans, before there was anything, there was God. God was complete in himself. He was completely glorious in himself. He did not need to create man in order to, to satisfy anything within him. Because he is God, he is complete in every way. But God wanted to show his love to his creation. God wanted to create so he can pour out his love and his grace. God wanted to create so that his, his creation could give glory back to him. And so what happened was is that God begins creating. And so we see in Genesis chapter 1 the six days of creation. And we see that God created for six days, and then on the sixth day, God created man, and on the seventh day, God rested. Genesis chapter 2, we see the seventh day where God rested. God didn't need to rest because he was tired. God did not need to rest because he had ran out of things to do. God didn't need to rest at all because God doesn't need to rest because he's God. But God rested so that he could show us an example. That we are to work six days, take a rest. In other words, we all need to have a Sabbath, a day of rest, a day where we can rest. And that was the reason why he rested. Then we see after that on Genesis chapter 2, kind of a deeper, deeper look, a deeper sneak peek into the creation of man. And so we see that God cre has created man and creates man and woman in his image. And then what God does is, is he puts man in this garden and man is in this garden and he brings all the animals in front of man. And, and, and Adam can't find a suitable companion. God said it is not good for man to be alone. So what does he do? God then takes Adam, puts him to sleep from his, from his side, takes out a rib, creates Eve, um, woman, who would be a helper from his rib, and then Adam and Eve are on the scene. And then Genesis chapter 2 concludes with the command that, that uh, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and they will become one flesh, one flesh together. The idea of sex. It was God's idea, the idea of marriage. It was God's idea. He designed it from the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. God had placed him into the Garden of Eden. We know that it was between the Tigris and Euphrates River, which if you go look at a map, that is right there dead center in Iraq today. You can go and kind of visit the whole entire area where the Garden of Eden actually was. And so that is where the Garden of Eden was, an actual place, actual people. 
while they were in the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam and Eve, you shall eat from any of the fruit in the garden. But I placed this tree over here, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that you shall not eat from. God did not set them up to fail. And then the serpent came to deceive Adam and Eve. It was interesting how he tempted them. He tempted them, he tempted them with this idea that if they ate from the tree, they would be like God. They gave into the temptation, they ate from the fruit. When they ate from the fruit, they realized immediately that they were naked, so they hid themselves. God came walking through the garden in the cool of the day, calling out to Adam, saying, where are you? As if God didn't know where he was already. God obviously knew. God said, why are you hiding, Adam? And Adam said, because I'm naked. He said, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree? And Adam, like every good, solid, godly man would do, says, the woman made me do it. And the woman said, well, the serpent made me do it. And they start blame shifting because every time we get called out on problems or issues in our life, even today, we like to blame other people because we don't want to take responsibility for the things that we've done in our life. And sin entered the world. And there were consequences given. The first consequence, which is known as the Adamic covenant, was given. And the first consequence was given to the serpent, that the serpent would now have to crawl on its belly for the rest of its life. In other words, the serpent had legs before then. The servant would have to crawl on its belly for the rest of its life. And that he would put enmity between the child, uh, the, woman, the woman's child, and, and the snake. And that he would, she, he would strike at its heel and it would crush its head. And I told you that that was a biblical allusion to Jesus. This is the first mention of Jesus who would come and actually crush Satan's work, crush the work of Satan here on earth through that. And so that happens in Genesis chapter 3, the fall in his world. God tells woman that she would re- receive uh, extreme pain during childbearing and tells man and woman that they, would, that they would die and that the man's punishment would be that he would have to work the ground in order for the fruits of his labor. And then you get on to Genesis chapter 4, we get to the story of Cain and Abel. Cain, then, uh, uh, Cain and Abel bring a sacrifice, the sons of Adam and Eve bring a sacrifice to God. Uh, Cain's, Abel, Cain's sacrifice was not pleasing to God, Abel's was. Cain was jealous, so Cain killed Abel. Um, God then punishes Cain. Then at the end of that chapter, we see that uh, Adam and Eve are, uh, have other children. Then after that, we get into the story of Noah. That there was a righteous man named Noah, this man who loved God, and all the other peoples of the world had become wicked. They did evil in the sight of the Lord, and so God was so frustrated with his creation, he had decided that he was going to destroy everybody, but God changed his mind because he saw Noah. So he tells Noah and his family to build an ark, which intriguingly, it had never rained before this time. Rain had never touched the earth, the waters had never rose before, so Noah would have been ridiculed and made fun of for creating, building this big boat when there was no water on the ground but Noah believed in what God said he believed in God and so he began to build this ark God gave him the dimensions told him what to build and he told him to go and take two a pair one pair of every unclean animal and seven pairs of every clean animal we talked about this last week you can look it up and check me out in Genesis chapter 6 through 8 when it tells the story of Noah you can check me out some people think that Noah took two of every animal on the ark he did not take two of every animal on the ark based on the Bible that's why we're telling the story of the Old Testament so that you can know accurately what the Bible says seven pairs of every clean animal so that they would have food to eat the waters rose the entire world was destroyed then uh, 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 Noah sends out a, a raven that flies over the waters for 40 days. Then he sends out a dove, and then uh, and the dove finds somewhere to land. He comes back. He sends him out seven days later. The dove comes back with an olive branch. He sends him out seven days later. The dove doesn't come back, so he opens up the ark. There's dry land. They all get off on the land. Then God makes a covenant with Noah called the Noahic Covenant, and God says to Noah, I will never destroy the earth in this way again. 
Then what happens is, is that, that, uh, that we see the, 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 uh, the, the people, um, the generations of people after that um, growing and the population growing and the population growing and the population growing. And all of a sudden the population gets pretty large, but God told them to fill the earth. But everyone was concentrated in one place. So what God did was they decided that the people decided they were going to build this tower and they were going to build it up to heaven. They were going to make a monument for themselves. And so, so as they were doing this, God confused the languages. And when God confused the languages, it caused the people to spread out all over the place. And that gets us to Genesis chapter 12. The story of Abram, whose name was later changed to Abraham. And if you got uh, your, your notes there on your seat, you can see, uh, you can walk through this as we walk through this. Now listen, I want you to pay attention. This is extremely important. The context of what we're teaching through this summer, teaching through the Old Testament, is meant to be more informational than inspirational. I want you to know what the Bible says. I want you to know the stories. I want you to know how it all fits together. And so this is more classroom than it is conference. Now, I know you're out of school, and I know that's going to be hard for you, but I want you to focus in because I think that God would have something to say to you because here's the deal. These stories of the Bible aren't just made-up stories. They are real stories. They're real stories of real people interacting with God, and you are a real person interacting with God. And you can learn a lot from the people of the Bible. And so we get to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 begins with God calling Abram. Abram, uh, Abram was, uh, was, was a man who, um, who loved God, and uh, who God found favor. And so in Genesis chapter 12, we see that Abram is 75 years old. So he's an old man at this time. He's married to a woman called Sarai. Abram and Sarai lived in, uh, in, this, in this particular land. And God comes in, in Genesis chapter 12 and says to Abram, I want you to leave your land. I want you to leave everything that you know that is comfortable to you. And I want you to go to this place that I'm going to show you. Abraham was a man of great faith, and he believed in God, and he did what God said, even though this didn't make sense. So Abram gathered together all of his, all of his, uh, all the people that supported him, all the people that loved him. Abram and Sarai did not have any children, and so um, they had servants and other people that worked for them. They had herders. They had uh, a lot of workers that worked for them. They had tons of herds and, and animals and all this stuff. Then he also got his nephew Lot. His nephew Lot and Abram and Sarai, they set out to go to this place that God would take him. The first place he takes him, we see it in Genesis chapter 12, is this particular area of, of uh, uh, as they're going to this particular area, we see that there's a famine in the land. So they go to Egypt because the, they can have places for their herds and all that stuff. Now here's the interesting thing about it. This is kind of weird, which is why I, I, I just truly believe people would say the Bible's boring. It's just crazy. Uh, what's, it's kind of this little weird story where, where they go into the land and... Abram is afraid that he is going to be killed and someone is going to take his wife because his wife is hot. He's like, these people are going to be jealous and they're going to take me out and they're going to take my wife. So as they go into the town, Abram begins to tell everybody, hey, listen, this isn't my wife. This is my sister. So Pharaoh brings her in because he sees that she's beautiful and he sets his eyes to marry her. Well, as this happens, all this stuff starts happening to Pharaoh and his people. And he's like, man, what the heck's going on? And God tells him, listen, you better, you better stop because she's a married woman. And so Pharaoh goes to Abram and he says, what have you done? Why have you done this to me? Why have you allowed me to, to try to marry your wife? Why have you allowed this to happen? Why did you tell me it was your sister? So Abram gave him a whole bunch of stuff and told him to leave. And so he leaves and he begins to head out. And then they go and they settle in this land and we get to Genesis chapter 13. 
When they get in this land, um, what happens is, is that they grow so fast in population in their herds that their herders begin to fight with each other. They're fighting over which land is better. And so one guy's like, dude, I want my sheep to eat in this area. And the other guy's like, no, your sheep ain't eating over here. I've already called it. These are my sheep eating place. You know what I'm saying? And so they begin to fight, and they begin to quarrel, and they begin to, all this stuff begins to happen. And so Abram and Lot gets together, and Abram says, man, hey, maybe it's not a great idea for us to stay together here in this area. I'll tell you what, there's plenty of land for us to spread out here. You pick away. If you go right, I'll go left. If you go left, I'll go right. Lot says, Lot looks to the right, and he sees uh, over by the city of Sodom, he sees some land that looks pretty fertile, looks pretty damp, looks like it's got a lot of uh, water setting in it so that, so that he can feed and water his herds and, and his people. And he says, I'll take that over there. And Abram said, all right, that's cool. I'm going to go over here to this area called Canaan. And so they go and they settle in other areas. Now, as you begin to get through, then you get to, uh, then you get to Genesis chapter 14. Now, in Genesis chapter 14, what happens is, is that the kings of Sodom and the kings of Gomorrah and the kings of some of these other cities around this area, they begin to get into this gigantic battle with one another. The kings of Sodom and the kings of Gomorrah are defeated, and when they're defeated, their people are taken captive by these other kings. Since Lot, Abram's nephew, had set his tents up by the city of Sodom, what happened is, is that they were taken captive. So word gets back to Abram that his nephew and his family has been taken captive. So Abram does what anybody would do. He says, let's go kick some tail. So Abram, I'm, that's Bill, I'm just, no, I'm just kidding. He didn't say that. So Abram says, Abram gathers together 318 of his best fighting men. And he says, let's go do this thing. And they go out and they demolish the armies of these kings. 318 of his best trained men. God was with them. He rescues Lot and they take them, uh, they, they take them back. Well, Lot and his, his wife decide that they're going to go live inside of the city of Sodom. So then... There's an interesting thing at the part of Genesis chapter 14. We don't have a lot of time to go into this, so I won't go into it. But you can check it out for yourself for you people that want to go a little deeper. There is someone that is mentioned there at the end of chapter, uh, chapter 14. I'm not going to read it to you, but it is Melchizedek. Melchizedek uh, is also mentioned in Psalm one time, and he's mentioned also in Hebrews chapter 7. Um, this, is, this is extremely important. Is this, is, this is actually what we believe is, is Jesus. Jesus came and he begins to speak to, to Abram. And uh, this is called a theophany, or this is where God reveals himself to man, and God reveals himself through Jesus. And, and in Hebrews chapter 7, we see the writer of Hebrews explaining, which is in the New Testament, explaining this idea to the people who were the Jewish people, or the Israelites, the people who had descended from Abram, that the guy who actually came and talked to Abram was Melchizedek, who was actually Jesus all the way back in Genesis chapter 14. This is really important. Then you get to Genesis chapter uh, 16. Now, uh, I'm sorry, in 15. Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. God tells Abraham, I am going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham was kind of confused by this because Sarah has had no, Sarai at this time has had no children. She's had no offspring and she can't have any offspring. She was barren. But Abram believed God, and the Bible tells us it was credited to him as righteousness. So, so God made a covenant with Abram. And then you get to Genesis chapter 16. Now here's what happens is this. God made a promise to Abram, but 10 years have passed, and the promise has not happened. And they're getting a little impatient. Any impatient people in the house? Yeah, you know what I'm saying? 
10 years. Can you imagine waiting 10 years? That would be like your mom telling you when you're 16 years old, hey, I'm going to buy you a car for your 16th birthday. But then you're 26 years old and you still don't have the car. Mom, come on. Like, what's the deal? You know what I'm saying? And that's what's going on here. Ten years have passed. The promise has not been fulfilled. So his wife, Sarai, decides to take things in her own hand. And this was uh, part of the customary culture of this day. And so Sarai goes to her servant, Hagar, and she goes to Abram, and she says, why don't you take my servant, Hagar, uh, sleep with her, get her pregnant, so that you will be able to give your inheritance to someone from your bloodline. And so Abram did just that. Hagar becomes pregnant, she has a son, and they name him Ishmael. This is extremely important. Abram eventually, and we'll talk about this in a minute, Abraham ended up having two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. The descendants of Israel come through Isaac. The descendants of the Arab nation come through Ishmael. You say, why is that important? This is why that's important. People talk about, oh, that when's there going to be peace in the Middle East? Oh, when can we find a president or someone who's going to get peace in the Middle East? Listen, there will never be peace in the Middle East for this reason. Because the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac have been battling together against each other ever since this moment. It'll never happen. Because to the Arab world, Israel is a holy place for them. And to the Jews and to the Christians... Israel is a holy place to them. And this is the effects of this sin of, uh, uh, you know, I think crossing the boundary and not waiting on God's promise to Abraham has still has repercussions even to today. Then you get to Genesis chapter 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, 99 years old, he's been waiting on this promise now for 24 years. God solidifies his covenant with Abraham. He tells Abraham, listen, what I promised you is going to happen. Abraham laughs because he's like, no, this isn't going to happen. But God promises him that by the next year that it would last, uh, that, that, he, that he would uh, have a son. God changes Abram's name to Abraham right here. He changes Sarah's na- uh, Sarai's name to Sarah. And so Abraham and Sarah get this promise from God. And then God tells Abraham to do something crazy. At least I think it's crazy, but God is God and he can do whatever he wants to. God says that you, you will know your people. You will know that this covenant has been made to you because of circumcision. And so God commands him to go circumcise all of his men. This is the first instance in the history of the world where circumcision happens. If you don't know what that is, just ask your mom tonight. Maybe your dad. And uh, because I'm not explaining it. <laughs> um, and so he seals his covenant. So can you imagine... Abraham now has to circumcise every man. Talk about a job that you don't want to have. Every boy all the way up to manhood. And so from this point on, it was said that every boy that was eight years old, in order to be a part of the covenant, to be a part of Israel, God's chosen people, his descendants, that on the eighth day that a boy is born, that he would be circumcised. Now, it is important for you to understand the idea of circumcision and how important this is to the Israelite people and to the Jews because when you get to the New Testament, this becomes a point of contention. This becomes a point of contention because the, this was a covenant that was made with the people of Israel. Now people, now the, the salvation has been made available not just to Israel but to everyone, to Jews and to Gentiles through Jesus. And now when Gentiles or people who are not Israelites or Jews become Christians, now the Jewish Christians are saying you've got to get circumcised in order to be in right standing with God. 
And so there's this battle that goes on and this conflict that happens in the early church. And so in the book of Acts, we see that God reveals something to Peter. And they pull together in this thing called the Jerusalem Council. And they tell them, listen, the things that were under the law, the things that were under this covenant are not held to the people that are, that are under the new covenant, which New Testament means new covenant. There's this new covenant that has happened through Jesus and you're not under the old covenant. You are now under the new covenant. Under grace. And so no longer are you known as God's people by being circumcised, but you are known as God's people if you have put your faith in Jesus. You can't understand the whole context of the New Testament unless you understand this whole idea. So he does that, and then God tells him his wife will be pregnant. And then there's kind of a little break here in, in Genesis 18 from this story, and later on, he, in, a, in a couple chapters later, she has the child. But in chapter 18, what happens is three visitors come, and they're walking through, and Abraham calls over to them. They come over to him. We know that these three visitors, one of them is God, two of them are angels. They come over to Abram and they, Abraham now, and they begin to have this conversation. And they confirm that by the end of the year, she's going to have a child. Then the two visitors continue on, and they, uh, two of the visitors continue on, the two angels, and they head towards Sodom. God then speaks to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, they are going to Sodom to destroy it. The people of Sodom are so wicked, so detestable, that they are going to destroy the people. Now this is a problem because Abram's nephew Lot and his family lives in Sodom. So Abram pleads with God and he says, God, what if you find 50 people righteous in Sodom? Will you still destroy it? God, what if you find 50? I mean, would you destroy all those people if 50 people were righteous, if 50 people were good? And God says, okay, Abram, if I find 50, I will not destroy them. And Abram says, if there's 50, God, what about 40? What if you find 40? If you find 40, will you still destroy them? God says, okay, Abram, if I find 40, I won't destroy him. And Abram says, okay, okay, well, if it's 40, what if it's 30? And he keeps going all the way down until he gets to 10. And he says, God, what if you find 10 righteous people? Will you still destroy those people? And God tells Abram, if I, Abraham, if I find 10 righteous people, I will not destroy God, Sodom and Gomorrah. So the two angels in the form of men, they walk into the city, and they go to Lot's house. Lot takes them into the house, and the Bible tells us that the men of the city, both young and old, come to the house, and they begin to beat on the door, demanding for the two men that are inside. They say, bring them out to us so that we may have sex with them. Lot said, these are guests in my house. Please don't do this. Please don't do this. The guys keep pleading for the men inside. And they are, they're trying to get to the men inside. So Lot, so Lot steps outside the door. And he's trying to protect, the, protect the, uh, the men that are inside. And he says, listen, 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 listen. I've got two daughters what if I gave them to you instead? Great dad right there. Let me tell you. What an idiot. I told you the Bible's not boring. And so the men said, you give us those two men or we're going we're gonna to do something way worse to you. And at that time, the angels opened the door. They blinded the men outside of the door. And they began to destroy the city. And they take Lot and his family and they say, run for your lives and do not look back at the city. These angels lead, the men, lead Lot and his family outside of the city. He says, run for your lives, don't look back at the city, don't turn back to the city. And Lot's wife turns back to look at the city and the Bible tells us she turns into a pillar of salt. Which is interesting because when you get to the New Testament, there's this whole idea of 
Jesus says, no man putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. The idea is this, no man saying, God, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to serve you, I'm going to worship you, you are mine, but looking back at his former life is fit for the kingdom of God. The picture is, is that she was running away from a city of wickedness that she desired to be a part of. And so she fell as well. And then that chapter ends with kind of, that's chapter uh, 19, kind of ends with this like uh, a kind of a weird story where, where Lot and his two daughters now are living on the outskirts of the city in the cave and, um, and uh, they can find no men to be with so they get their dad drunk and they sleep with their dad in order to carry on their, their father's name. Pretty gross stuff. It's the Bible. I'm telling you. You read it's like, what the heck? People are weird. Anyways, then in Genesis chapter 20, the same thing that happened earlier when, when Abram went into Egypt and, uh, and, uh, and was there and kind of told the people of Egypt that his wife was, was, uh, was, uh, uh, was his sister. He does the same thing in Genesis chapter 20 to his guy Bimelech. Same thing happens there. They let him go. And then in Genesis chapter 21, we see that finally Isaac is born. The promise has been fulfilled after 25 years. Isaac is born um, and Sarah begins to get jealous. Sarah's jealous that now that there is Isaac and now there's Ishmael, she's jealous that what's going to happen is Ishmael is going to demand the inheritance and do something to Isaac. So she begs Abraham to, to, to send uh, Hagar and his son Ishmael off. And so Abraham does. God tells uh, Hagar and Ishmael that, that he's going to take care of Ishmael, make him a great nation and all this kind of stuff. And that's where we get the Arab nation from. And, uh, and the same with Isaac. That's where the seed of, uh, uh, through which the Messiah Jesus would come. And God vows to protect Ishmael, but promises the covenant through, through Isaac. Then, in Genesis chapter 2, which is the last chapter we're going to discuss before we get to the popcorn in the movie. Uh, in Genesis chapter 22, this is what happens. God tests Abraham. Isaac's been growing up. He's the object of Abraham's affection. Can you imagine waiting for a promise of God for 25 years, and all of a sudden, you have this son. And then God gives this, this weird command to Abraham. He says to Abraham, I want you to take the most important thing in your life. I want you to take your son Isaac. I mean, can you imagine how important his son would have been? He would have loved his son. He would have done anything for his son. I want you to take him up on the mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. God, what in the world? Abraham didn't hesitate. Abraham gathered up the wood. He takes his son, and they begin to head up to this mountain. He stops just short of it, tells the, the men that were traveling with him, you guys stay back. He, he walks up on the mountain with his son. They begin to build this this, this altar, they put the wood down. His son asks, Isaac asks, he says, where's the ram for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide. And after they put the, 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 the altar together, uh, Abram takes Isaac, he ties him up, and he places him on the altar. He pulls the knife out, he holds it up over Isaac, and God stops him. And God was testing him to see if he would do what God told him to do, even give away the most important thing in his life. You say, man, how does that apply to my life? What is the most important thing in your life? And are you willing to give that up for God? Are you willing to lay it on the altar and say, God, I give this to you. I'm willing to give up. I'm willing to lay down the most important thing in my life so that you know that I'm all in for you. See, I think the test was God was testing Abraham with this idea that Abraham loved his son so much and his son was so important to him that God wanted to make sure that God was still more important than his son was. And Abraham proved that. And so God provided a ram that was caught by the horns in the thicket. 
He brings the ram over. They lay him on the altar. They sacrifice the ram. And, uh, and, and they, they have this kind of celebration thing. And then we see, throughout, then we see how uh, God then solidifies his promise to Abraham saying that I'm going to make you into a great nation. Descendants as far as, as, far, uh, you know, as, as many as the sky, stars in the sky, the sands on the seashore. That you're going to be the father of, of all these nations. That, that you're going to be all this kind of stuff. Then Abraham has more children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you get a couple chapters later to the death of Abraham. So that is... A little bit of a walkthrough of about 11 chapters of the Bible, plus a review of another 11 chapters of the Bible, covering about 22 to 23 chapters of the Bible tonight. 